Hey, this is Maureen with a pre-show correction. Throughout the show, you'll hear me referring to a really good TV show in the 90s, Criminal Investigation with Bill Curtis. Well, it was really good, but it wasn't called Criminal Investigation. It was called Investigative Reports. So, duh, on me. I could have just pasted in Investigative Reports every time I say Criminal Investigation, but I wouldn't have been fooling you guys, and it would have sounded like shit. So just keep that in mind as you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And this is our 15th episode. 15. Do, do you think I have to say that every episode now, which one it is? Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, why not? And I always get excited. Yeah, me too. I'm it. always excited. And we were delayed tonight in getting going because we're still trying to figure out our... Technical our issues. technical issues. Which and you should address I'm, the Chandra Levy episode. That was actually my segue into addressing oh, the Chandra. So should. after we recorded episode thirteen, which was the Chandra Levy episode, which just dropped last week, I realized that in my cutting and pasting of my script I had accidentally removed almost a page. <laughs> <laughs> I had cut it and not pasted. It back and it was important information so I thought what the heck if I just sit in the same place and put the microphone in the same place and record the same way it'll sound just like that I can just seamlessly paste it in and obviously that's not what happened we, we had some feedback on it yes but. and you know we don't have to tell you guys this we could just pretend it you know just go on our merry way but we feel we're we very like to be transparent we are very transparent <laughs> Some people would say it's a TMI situation. <laughs> but I felt like one thing I was thinking was, you know, I should just leave it alone. We've already recorded. But on the other hand, I felt like it was important information to get in there. You don't want to shortchange all our fans. We, we don't. And, well, and it's one thing, too, when I'm listening to a podcast that's describing a murder or something, or when i even watching a documentary, if there's holes in it and stuff, it bothers me. Yes. And no. we're just, we just have faith in you guys that you would rather have those holes filled, and the sound quality be a little odd. And it wasn't bad sound quality. It just sounded different. Yeah, it was an it was obvious different. cut and paste in a couple yes. places. And, so and I wasn't there up, in the background. And you weren't there in the background asking important questions. <laughs> or making saying, weird. No, I notice I make weird noises. You do, yeah. Well, like, you're like agreeing with me and going, hmm. I'm the Ed McMahon of the show. And I, I also have an update. On Ooh. episode two, way back when, it oh, seems so long ago, we, in November, we did Todd Colehep. The South Carolina uh, serial killer. Yeah. And he was indicted February 28th, not only on the murder charges and other things, but they had added a criminal sexual conduct first-degree charge. Kayla Brown, one of his victims who he didn't kill, she's the one they found in the storage container uh, after three months, was on Dr. Phil and talked about how she was raped twice a day. Huh, that didn't I surprise she, me. I assumed that. I that, assumed that, yeah. too. And... I assume also she told the police that as well, well and not yeah. just Dr. Phil, and they didn't find it out Although from watching. Although Dr. Phil is very, you know... He has a way of getting information yes. out of people. So he was indicted February 28th. He was in court for a, a preliminary hearing the other day, 
and we'll have more on what happens to him. Also, just to update a little, in court documents, some other stuff came out. He was, by the way, for those of you just catching up, he's charged with killing four people Ugh. from a motorcycle shop years before that. It was he, 2007? Yes. When he did that it, he but they didn't catch him until he confessed. Yeah. Right, that he confessed after Kayla Brown was found in that storage container. He killed Kayla Brown's partner. He also killed... <laughs> Johnny and Megan Coxie in December 2015, and in the court documents that came out, he told investigators that he had hired the Coxies to clean his property and homes for sale, and that the day that he killed them, December 19th, or killed Johnny, December 19th, 2015, he said while he was delivering cleaning supplies to them, Johnny tried to rob him. Yeah, So right. he shot Johnny twice in the chest, and then he restrained Megan and went back to shooting Johnny a little more. And he put Megan in the storage container uh, where she was where for he, six days. I'm sure raped her. Yes, where I'm sure for six days. And then he said she did something to make him mad, so he shot her. It wasn't known at the time when he had killed them. Their bodies were found on his property, but it wasn't known when he had killed them or what the circumstances were. So he's charged with seven murders, including the four victims of the Superbike Motorsports. And that's just an update, and we'll keep Ugh. track of him. And one thing that we'll find was true of him and we've talked about will also be true in my topic tonight. He obviously had mental health issues and I'm not excusing him, but people, especially the people closest to people like that, often are in denial or don't understand the significance of the mental health issues are just dumb asses and it exacerbates the issue and leads to people dying and stuff. And that yes. leads to tonight's. Well, first we're going to start. You and I were both independently watching 48 Hours Mystery, a two-part episode called Stalking that just came out on yes. our app, at least. With and that, as we tend that to, girl from uh, Christy Grimmy, Christy, no, the actress Polly. I'm going to get to all that. Uh. Polly Perrette from <laughs> NCIS. But as we tend to do sometimes at night when we're in our homes watching stuff, we were texting each other. Oh yes, yes, and. So we have, I have a little text exchange that illustrates some of the stuff we're going to be oh, talking so about. Oh, so are we going to do a dramatic reading? We're going to do a dramatic okay. reading. You don't want to hear all our texts because some of them would make your hair stand on end. I think some hair. people would get pissed off. And all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> but so we're going to, we'll just read, you read yours and I'll read mine. Okay, okay. so I start. So, actually I do. Wait a minute. Um, no. Well, I, no, I just want to, no, actually there's just something I want to say or it's going to be confusing to people. And then we can start. Okay. When I was watching this, you know, people tend to ask me as an author who would play my characters in movies. And to me, they're real people. And I, okay, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. This isn't a shameless plug. There's a re there's no, context I, to this. No, I'm not saying okay. it's a shameless plug. So anyway, there's a psychiatrist on this 48 Hours Mystery who I developed a little crush on <laughs> yes. while I was watching it. And also... He's he reminds me of somebody who might be Pete, the police chief in my books. A little bit, not he totally. He didn't remind me because he, he was a little too clean cut. He was a little too clean cut and maybe a little wimpy-ish, or yeah. but <laughs> but he was he had some aspects and maybe it's just because I had a crush on him. I developed this crush okay. within minutes of watching him on TV and I don't know why. Okay, it's unexplained. And the other thing it's is not an obsession. So Becky, why don't you start? I don't know what kind of tone of voice to use for my text. Just pretend, voice. just do, you do pretty good imitations of other people when you're reading their texts. I feel, <laughs> I feel like a lot of the issues these victims have are because they are women. I mean, issues with the fucking cops. Exactly. Except for the Pete guy. He seems understanding. 
I can't wait to stalk him. Maybe I'll just stalk one of my neighbors. That would be pretty easy and I wouldn't have to do much. Yeah, it seems like a lot of work. With the Pete guy, you know, I think I'll just call him Pete. It wouldn't really be stalking because I, I felt like his soul was reaching out to me through the screen and he wants me to go with him and be with him. I think I'll send him an email every hour just so he'll know our love is real. I'm going to drive to California tomorrow so we can be together. But it's not stalking because I can tell he wants it too. I'm sure Pete would appreciate you letting him know how you feel. Who, who could object to someone sharing their love? I'm thinking of wearing a wedding dress to meet him so he can see I know how deep our love is. Or just go naked under your coat. Ooh, yeah, so sexy. I think I'll break into his house and hide in his bed, too, for when he gets home. He'll like that. Who wouldn't? I can tell just by seeing him on TV that he really gets me and wants us to be together. That's the end of it. Oh, okay. I think earlier, too, you were speculating maybe on stalking the governor of Maine, Paul LePage. Mm -hmm. Hadn't you texted me about well, that? Well, I think it started because it said the guy that... The, the guy what, that killed Chrissy. Green. Yes, it said he, he started stalking her and he lost 50 pounds to make himself look better. And I said, maybe I should start stalking somebody. I could lose 50 pounds. Yeah. Then I thought, yeah, the governor, he's lost a lot of weight. He had gastrointestinal surgery. Whatever. Yeah. But I was just joking because I actually do not find the man attractive. No, in any way. No matter what weight he weighs. But, but as you'll but see. But I was joking. So. Right, and and stalking is not a laughing matter. No, it is. Although we, we laugh, laugh at it, people laugh, people joke. Like you know how like when you like somebody or are dating somebody, but it's not going well or something. How you drive by their house a lot to see if they're home or what they're doing or someone else is there. And I know neither of us have ever done that, and nobody I know has ever done that. But well, not even the, if it's not going well. What if you just ha like somebody this and is you all drive, theoretical. You drive, drive by, by their, their house. house but their now friends. you can just Facebook stuff. I know. It makes, so, so the internet makes things a lot easier. But so people make jokes about that, and remember how on Two and a Half Men, like the first season, it was actually kind of funny. Oh, that And Charlie had a stalker. The girl from Beautiful Creek. Uh, you know, what's her name? Linsky. Well, the point is we laugh about stalking. Mm -hmm. Because I'm really not a stalker, and you're not a stalker. Actually, stalking is a very wide-ranging issue. It's common. We hear about it a lot in the context of celebrity stalking, but it's much more common for normal people who have been in relationships with somebody. It's a real issue that covers the spectrum from inadequate mental health services and recognition of mental health to the ubiquity of social media to the downplaying of domestic violence issues to inadequate laws, the availability of guns, and I know I know that all sounds boring, but it's really not boring. In the 48 hours we both watched hinged on the murder of, as we said, Chrissy Grimmie, mm -hmm. Christina Grimmie, who was a singing sensation. She rose to fame on YouTube and was on The Voice a couple years ago, and she was shot to death after a show in Orlando in June 2016. So let's start with that. Chrissy Grimmie, 22, was a lovely young woman who seemed really happy and open and ready for big things. She didn't know Kevin Loibel, and I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing his name Fuck right. Fuck him. I know, he doesn't deserve to have his name pronounced That's right. That's right. She knew nothing about him when he approached her after her June 10th show in Orlando, Florida, but she opened her arms to embrace him anyway. That's, That's when the so sad. I know. Sorry. That's when the 27-year-old Best Buy Geek Squad employee shot her in the chest. Mm. Loibel had come to the show armed with two handguns, two additional loaded magazines, and a hunting knife. 
He may have done more damage to the 120 or so fans who had stayed to greet Grimmy after her show if her brother Marcus, who helped her out at shows and with her career, hadn't tackled Loibel and held him until the police arrived after he shot his sister. There was no bag check or metal detectors at the show, according to reports. And it's another story that's become common, common enough, an obsessed stalker fan killing the object of his affections. If you want to call I, and him I affections. Think it, probably didn't get as much publicity as it would have because of the the other shooting in Orlando that took place what the next night or the night right. after. Right. And it's funny they had nothing to do with the, it's not funny but they had nothing to do with each no, other. But how easy it is to get firearms. Yeah, that's a big One thing issue. they have in common. And also crazy people crazy who think people, shooting yeah. people is going to do something for them and I don't think it does. But Grimmy's story is a little different and that by all accounts, she hadn't had any contact from Loibel and didn't know he existed. He knew she existed, though he was obsessed with her. I guess that's one silver lining, that she wasn't terrorized by him before her death like so many stalking victims are. The 48 Hours Mystery episode that we watched about this, a two-parter, focused on other women who are lucky and that they're still alive, but not so lucky as far as contact with their stalkers go. Polly Perrette who plays the aggressively quirky scientist <laughs> on NCIS. I have to admit, I don't watch. I've watched NCIS a few times, I and I have an issue with characters that are quirky just for the sake of being quirky, which I won't I go into. I have nothing against her, but I don't, I don't like that show. So and, I, I like I her better now like after it. seeing I have, the, no, the 48 I just, Hours. I have no problem And with I her. had no problem with her actually on the show. I just felt it was just quirkiness for the sake of quirkiness, which... I'm not a fan of, but I digress. She's been the victim of a stalker for about a decade, mm. and she's fighting to get laws passed that will make it harder for people to stalk people. Because despite, and you'll see as we go on, all that's happened over the years, there are still so many legal issues that allow people to stalk. And one of the big issues that is a thread that runs through all this is a lot of stalking victims don't like to talk about the fact that they're being stalked. Mm -hmm. And Perrette told 48 Hours that one of the things she's trying to do is get people to talk about it. Researching this issue, I watched two really good documentaries from the mid-1990s. So more than 20 years ago, they were still saying the same thing and stressing how that has to change, how victims of stalking need to be able to speak out about it and how they need to be taken seriously. Obviously, one of the issues is the more public you make it, the more it feeds your stalkers need to be... Sometimes it does, but... It feels like if you don't talk about it it's just going to go on and on it will go on and on you are you do i guess have to worry about making him or her so upset that they would harm you right it's a fine line i almost feel like saying okay you should out the person like if someone's stalking you then like the woman i know you're going to talk about later but there was a woman who it was a doctor or something it's like, I would be tempted to put a sin's name all over Facebook. I know that it's probably dangerous to do that, but it's almost like, okay, if you're going to stalk me, then I'm going to tell everybody who you are and what you're doing. Right, but one of the things but in I the research... One so. of the things in the research I've done on this is over the decades, a lot of women who are victims of stalkers, and even on that 48 hours, they'll talk about the stalking. They won't talk about the stalker or who he is mm -hmm. because they don't want to give him that satisfaction. Yeah. And, and it's a fine line. It's a complicated issue. Perret also said Grimmy's murder should be, quote, a wake-up call, unquote. Believe it or not, kind of like school shootings, people have been saying that for more than 30 years, yes. too. Every time something happens, oh, this is a wake-up call. So let's go back earlier than even the 1990s 
and let's talk about stocking and its current formation because stocking I'm sure has been going on since as long as there's been human but beings. the first time I started hearing the term was in the early 90s yeah and we'll find out okay. when that happened so let's talk about stocking it's hard to believe but in the summer of 1982 stocking wasn't a thing or at least it didn't have a name that's right it didn't have a name and it wasn't taken very seriously that changed a little with actress Teresa Saldana. Saldana first caught the public eye in the 1978 movie, I Want to Hold Your Hand, The Beatles, yes. when she was 24 years old. But her star really rose a couple years later with a couple small roles in small movies that won critical acclaim. And then her star turned as, as Lenore LaMotta in Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. She played the wife of the character played by Joe Pesci, who yes. was... Jake LaMotta's brother, played by Robert De Niro. It was a big movie. and At the time. Especially because Robert De Niro gained a bunch of weight. Yeah, that's right. She not only caught the eye of critics and the public with that role, but also of Scottish drifter Arthur Jackson. Mm. The 46-year-old became obsessed with her. He tried to reach her through her agents and other means, but wasn't successful. Then he came to the United States illegally, an illegal immigrant, Maybe we can put a wall up across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Keep these damn Scottish illegal immigrants from coming over here and killing people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And anyway, he didn't kill her. But he hired a private investigator to find her. Okay, how could he afford that if he was a drifter? Because they're cheap. Saying. Okay. How could he afford to come over? I don't know. Maybe drifters <laughs> have money. In any case, he also contacted family members. It's not clear if that was before or after the private investigator saying he was a representative of Martin Scorsese and was looking for her contact info. But maybe it was both things. In any case, he managed to find her address. Ugh. One night in March 1982, he walked up to Saldana on the street as she left her home in West Hollywood and said, Are you Teresa Saldana? Well, I'm sure he said it with a nice little Scottish burr that, you know, sounded innocent. And she said yes. He attacked her, stabbing her in the chest, legs, and uh. arms with a hunting knife. A passing delivery truck driver, who later became a cop, Jeff Fenn came to her rescue, subduing Jackson and holding him until the cops got there. Jackson was convicted of attempted murder a year or two later and sentenced to 15 years from prison. That's it. Well, well, he she she wasn't killed. Yeah. She was in the hospital for three and a half months. When he was released in 1996, he was deported to Scotland, where he was convicted of a 1966 murder there. Hmm. He had written in his diary that he was on a divine mission and wanted to send Therese Saldana into eternity where they could be together. How nice of him. And that's according to Variety magazine. After the attack, he wrote her a letter saying he should have used a gun because it would have been more effective and would, quote, have given me a better chance of a reunion with you in heaven. I think his reasoning is all a little faulty on that. Yeah, a little bit, but, you know. Saldana was in the hospital for three and a half months, as I said, and later formed the group Victims for Victims, which was the first attempt at getting laws passed that addressed stalking. And so that was the first wake-up call. If he believed in heaven, did he not think that killing somebody would... Apparently not. (laughs) A lot of people have killed in the name of God. Yeah, but they don't necessarily think they are good. Well, okay, maybe they do. But I I don't think he was the most rational and logical (laughs) thinker. In this parade of of sad sack killers that we're going to hear about the next 45 minutes or so, none of them are people you'd want to have on your side on a debate team. (laughs) Put it that way, yeah. Yeah. Okay. A few months after Saldana's attack, also in L.A., blooming actress Dominique Dunn, 21, was ending a relationship with Master Chef John Sweeney. Mm. 
Sweeney was a chef at Ma Maison. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing <laughs> that right because I don't fucking speak French. <laughs> but it was a very exclusive restaurant, and he was considered a good chef. Sweeney, 36, was also controlling and easily angered. <laughs> Her friends and family didn't like him. Dunn, the daughter of writer Dominic Dunn and Ellen Griffin Dunn, and sister of the actor Griffin Dunn, showed up at her mother's on a summer night in 1982 after Sweeney had attacked her, so scared she rolled up into a fetal position in her mother's hallway. Mm. Sweeney had tried to strangle her, and that was the last straw. She told her mother he was obsessed with her, not in love with her, and wouldn't leave her alone, and that's when she broke up with him. She had the sense to have a friend photograph her injuries, which came in handy, it turned out. She was doing a guest shot on Police Story as a battered teenager, and hmm. the bruises came in handy on the show. They didn't need to use as much makeup, and that's not a joke. It's mentioned in every story about her death that I've read, Aww. including her father's searing account of her trial that, that appeared in Vanity Fair in 1984. But Sweeney wouldn't leave her alone. In October 1982, as she ran lines with a friend, actor David Parker, in her house, Sweeney showed up, and she went out into the yard where they got into an argument. Uh. Sweeney ended up strangling her to death, Ugh. dragging her down a side alley between her home and the one next door. During the four to six minutes it took her to die, Packer called 911 and also left a terrified voicemail on a friend's phone saying, If I die tonight, Sweeney did it. You mean Parker. After Dominique Dunn was <laughs> killed, her family remembered a lot of things that should have been red flags. As I said, they didn't like him. One time, when she brought him to visit her father and brother in New York and introduced them, they went all went out to a bar where a patron at the bar, a little guy, a guy who was a little tipsy, said, What's happening? Which was her big line from Poltergeist. Ah. She played the older daughter in the movie. Mm-hmm. And... She was so excited that a fan saw her, recognized her, and said that, that she went over to chat with him. Sweeney came out of the bathroom, saw her talking to another guy, and was livid. Something that should have been a red flag to anyone. Her family was very uncomfortable with him, but nobody said or did anything about it. His trial two years later was a horror show of 1980s sensibilities, blaming the victim, downplaying his violence against Dominique and his behavior, not allowing testimony from former girlfriends he had battered. You get the picture. He was sentenced to manslaughter and was out of prison in less than three years. And for more on that, you can read Dominic Dunn's Vanity Fair story about her death and her trial, which I'll link to our website on our More Stuff page. It's really good. I had read it in the 80s, and rereading it the other night, I remembered so much of it just because... It was good. The murder of a young, beautiful, and seemingly loved by everyone actress was another, quote, wake-up call, unquote, coming so soon after the attack on Saldana. Dunn's mother later founded justice for homicide victims. Her father, fueled by anger for the rest of his life, devoted much of his writing to attacking attitudes toward domestic violence, including coverage of both O.J. Simpson trials for Vanity Fair and writing a novel based on the Simpson murder case, 1994's Another City, Not My Own. He also wrote a 1990 book, People Like Us, in which a father goes to prison for shooting and wounding the man who murdered his daughter. This was also the era of John Hinckley, who obsessively harassed and stalked Jodie Foster Mm. before shooting Ronald Reagan, James Brady, and others in Washington in 1981 to impress her. It didn't work. Did you know, I was reading about him, he even enrolled in Yale... 
just to be close to her. He did. He did. He must have studied really hard. I know. Just to be Wicked close hot. to her. Yep. People do crazy things. Mark David Chapman shot and killed John Lennon in December 1980 because Lennon was famous. So there were lots of rage from these wake-up calls. Lots of family-destroyed organizations were formed. Stalking was recognized as a thing, although it was still yet to be called stalking. Yes. We're getting to that. But people also joked about it. There were a lot of jokes about stalking. There were jokes, and I want to say something. The reason I, one of the reasons I remember when it was becoming a thing is because I worked at a, at a law office. It was like 1993, and there was... A, there was a client who was like, he was mentally ill. As many of them did. Um, he was a petty criminal. He wasn't anything. But he would call the office constantly with issues. And he, he kept calling one day saying that somebody was stalking him. And I thought it was funny because that had just come into the usage, you know, like the, uh, the, lexicon. Uh, the lexicon. And so I wrote that on the, I was a secretary. I don't know why. We thought it was really funny. I wrote it as his message. He's he said being, he's being stalked. Yes. There was a TV show that, that was supposedly taking place in the early 80s where someone used that phrase. And I remember thinking, you know, it was a lot later. And I was thinking that was not. Right, it was that an was anachronism. Not, yes, not. I mean, it was right, not right. in public and usage. And we're going to get to okay. that. And while this type of thing was happening to women and men all over the world, nothing rivets the public's attention like when it happens to a celebrity, mm. especially a pretty young female celebrity, even more than a former Beatle or the President of the United States. But little was done. And by the way, it still wasn't officially called stalking. Thank you. Then came Rebecca Schaefer. Yes. Schaefer was a fresh-faced, girl-next-door young actress who had risen to fame in the late 1980s as co-star of My Sister Sam with Pam Dauber. Yeah, I used to watch that show. Me too, yeah. Schaefer's star was on the rise, and she, like Dunn, was destined for great things. The morning of July 18, 1989, she was waiting for a script to be delivered for a part she was trying out for in Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather Three. Since it was the 1980s, usually the scripts were dropped off at the front door of her apartment building on the stoop, and she'd just go downstairs when they rang the bell and pick it up. No email. <laughs> so when Robert Bardo rang the bell that morning, she went downstairs and answered the door. They had a quick, apparently pleasant conversation. She closed the door and went up to her apartment to take a shower. Bardo, 29, another drifter, this time from Arizona, I guess we can't put up a wall between California and Arizona to keep people from killing people. Went to a nearby diner and had breakfast. He later said he hadn't expected Schaefer to answer the door and was caught off guard. He thought he'd just be talking into her buzzer. I mean, into her intercom. He wouldn't be caught off guard the second time, though. He ate, loaded his gun, put it in his belt, made sure he had the card he had meant to give her the first time, and went back to her apartment house. It was not about an hour after his first visit. This time when he rang the bell and Rebecca came downstairs, he was ready. He went to hand her the card, and as she leaned forward, he grabbed her arm, pulled her to him, took out his gun, and shot her in the chest. His telling of this with some relish, including his imitation of her screams of horror, yeah. which he tells with a smile on his face, can be found on YouTube. No. He was arrested a day later, running around in traffic in Tucson, Arizona where he had taken a bus back home. These stalkers love to take buses, I found well, out. Well, you know. What else are you going to do? cheap. Yep. He confessed to her murder and was sentenced to life without parole. Bardo, more than Sweeney, the one who killed Dominique Dunn, more even than Jackson, Teresa Saldana's attacker, should have been on people's radar. 
One account says that a high school teacher considered him, quote, a time bomb on the verge of exploding. Yeah. He was the youngest of seven children of a retired Air Force officer and reportedly was abused as a child. Mm. His mental and emotional issues were clear early on. Schaefer wasn't his first target, only the most convenient one. He later said he wanted to kill a famous person so he could become famous too, but then he said that wasn't true at all, so who knows. Before he killed Schaefer, he'd written a letter to his sister saying he was obsessed with what he could not obtain, kind of like John Hinckley and Mark David Chapman. And like Chapman, he had a list of possible targets. Hmm. And like Chapman, who killed John Lennon, he had a copy of Catcher in the Rye with him when he shot Schaefer, Ugh. and he threw it up on a nearby roof as he ran from the scene. It was never one of my favorite books. I never liked that book. I thought it was way too self-indulgent, and the know. fact that it's the favorite of celebrity killers... Um, I don't help. know why it... Well, it is, because it, it's teen angst, you know. Boy teen angst. Yeah. Bardo said it was a coincidence that he had Catcher in the Rye, but it probably wasn't. He'd studied up on Mark David Chapman. Mm. His stalking started early in life. In fact, he had an obsession with stalking. But <laughs> uh, at 13, and you'll like this, there's always a main angle. At 13, in 1983, he took a bus from Arizona to Maine to meet Samantha Smith. Oh, that's right. He was obsessed with her, too. He, I remember right. that now. He was obsessed with the child who became famous for writing to Soviet leader Yuri Andropov, asking why we all just couldn't be friends and there couldn't be peace. I can't remember exactly. I used to have to cover and drop her. off. Andropov. <laughs> why can't I? Andropov. Yuri Andropov. It's why not can't pronounced... we all get along? It's oh, not pronounced Mikhail Gorbachev, which it had in one of the accounts I read. Oh, was. yeah. If those of you who <laughs> aren't from Maine are still struggling to remember who she was... She later became a child star in a show with Robert Wagner and was killed in a plane crash in 1985 at the age of 13 with her dad. Mm. So she wasn't around for long, but left an impression Left an impression on me because I was working to me as a newspaper reporter when she died, and it was all her Samantha Smith. Her parents used to come into the bookstore. Where right, because she was from Manchester, Maine, which was a suburb of Augusta, if Augusta could have a suburb. But when Bardo went up and took the bus at 13 all the way from Arizona to Maine, to meet Samantha Smith, he was simply put by law enforcement on the bus and sent back home. Well, that's what they did in the 1980s. Yeah. He'd also targeted Diane Cannon, Tiffany, the Diane teen... Diane Cannon? Yes. Tiffany, the teen singer, Debbie Poor Gibbs. Tiffany. Sorry, she had lots of stalkers. She did, because she used to sing at malls. So, and, and, and uh, those of you <laughs> young, younger malls than us probably don't pa remember. Probably pedophiles. Uh, Debbie Gibson, who was another teen singer. And she was in Heather Locklear and others. Oh. But they were all too hard to get to for various reasons. And some of this is in um, a documentary I'm going to talk about in a little while. It's actually not a documentary. It's a episode of Criminal Investigation with Bill Curtis that was on in the 90s. Bill Curtis. Bill Curtis with a K. And it was actually the precursor to, like, Dateline and 48 yes, Hours I Mystery. Yes, I used to watch and that. Watching this one, I recall now what a well-reported, well-done show it was, and it doesn't resort to a lot of the sensationalism and repetitiveness and trickery and all sorts of other stupid shit that some of the shows today do. But I digress again. Well, Dateline and 48 Hours used to be a lot different they did, they back were. in the day. People yeah. have shorter attention spans now, I guess, or something. They're stupider. No but, offense, anybody. <laughs> Besides studying up on Chapman, Bardo also read a People magazine article on Saldana's attacker, and I'm sure he read a lot of other things, and he decided to try the P.I. thing 
too, after walking around L.A. with a photo of Schaefer asking people if they knew where she lived <laughs> and contacting Sorry. her agent to I try to get her address, and he was shut down. The P.I. who had been convinced because in one of the many, many letters he sent Rebecca Schaefer, Bardo got a, a, you know, just a fan photo back from her with her name, and he wrote, like, a heart on it, I love you, Rebe Rebecca, or something. I love you, Robert, or whatever. And he used this as evidence to the PI that he knew her and was a friend of hers or something. He actually could have gotten that DMV information himself. It was public record at the time. You could get it for a buck. Aside from the Samantha Smith thing, this isn't Bardo's first crazy behavior. While he was a straight-A student, he wrote threatening letters to teachers. <laughs> he was hospitalized at least twice for emotional and mental issues. And I don't know if I said it, but he was 19 when he shot Rebecca Schaefer. No, uh, no, you did didn't. I say that? In the year and a half before her murder, he was arrested three times for things like domestic violence and disorderly conduct. Neighbors in Arizona said he'd given them the finger for no reason <laughs> and yelled well. at them and, quote, erupted in rages at them for no reason. And a lot of this is from a news story from July 24th, 1989, and the Eugene, Oregon Register Guard. Rebecca Schaefer was from Oregon. That's right. Yeah. And this is a really good article. It's one of those Google newspaper articles that's online. You know, obviously, in 1989, newspapers weren't putting anything yes. online. And it's rich with information. One of his neighbors said, quote, he was a real psycho guy. And psycho is capitalized, and I don't know if is so I don't know if it means like he's like the guy in Psycho oh, maybe. or if he meant Psycho and for some reason the newspaper just capitalized. But Bardo had pleaded no contest to the most recent charges against him and was sentenced to unsupervised counseling, which he never attended. Eight months before Schaefer's murder, he approached neighbors who were having a party for a 15-year-old girl. Mm. They were Mexican-American, and he yelled at them to go back to their country. So he'd fit right in. And they in. said, hey, this was our country first, asshole. No, I think they were nice and polite. But one guest told the Oregon newspaper that he also threatened to shoot them all with his three fifty seven Magnum. Mm, nice. So there were some red flags. You may wonder how Bardo got a gun, even back in the 80s when they were giving him away like candy. But a writer on a blog post, and this was on a different blog, but it was shared by blogger Frank's Real Reviews, wrote that Bardo in Tucson in the summer of 1980, 89, tried to buy a 357 Magnum and correctly filled out the paperwork that he'd been committed to a mental facility. Because, mm. as I said earlier, he had at least two stays in mental facilities. Blogger Frank Wilkins writes that the information, since it's a blog post, has to be taken for what it is. Still, you be the judge. And I'm quoting from this post. Again, Frank Wilkins of Frank's Real Reviews picked this up from another blog about murders and stuff. I can't, and I'm sorry, I don't have the name of that blog. But this is a quote. The salesman at the gun store, a member of the Air Force named Bob, told Bardo he could not purchase the revolver. Bardo got a rate and said he wanted to fill out another copy. The salesman sought out help, and Jerome La Rochelle, who also worked at the gun store, told the guy absolutely no way, and he told Bardo he could not own a firearm and to get the fuck out <laughs> because he did not like the vibes he was getting from him. Good. The two then escorted Bardo from the store. La Rochelle, his friend Bob, and the manager on duty at the gun store hung Bardo's disqualified form on the bulletin board and wrote, all in capital letters, do not sell to this individual. The next morning, Bardo came in with his brother, who bought the same Ruger GP100 Magnum Thanks, 357 bro. revolver and gave it to his brother when they went outside, which is a violation of federal law. Yes. This is still the blogger. His brother would have known that because it asks you that question on the form and warns that such straw man purchases are a violation of federal law. Bardo then used the revolver to fatally shoot Rebecca Schaefer on July 18th. And this is another thread that we see often 
with this stuff is that family members are basically enabling people to kill no, people. No, I wonder if his brother get charged with anything. I don't know. I mean, I know people do get I, And I'm sorry if that's bad reporting. No, no. But there's a lot. Uh, I mean, it's a, a long time ago. There's a case here in Maine where a woman got charged because of that very thing. She was a, It was a straw man purchase, and the person she got, well, I think it was her boyfriend or something. Of course, he, they make women do that. I don't know if he killed somebody, but he, but he, but he attempted to. He shot somebody. I'm trying to remember now. It was right. a couple well, years ago. Well, one thing is, if you can't buy a gun... If, no, if your boyfriend or brother or whoever can't buy a gun because they're fucking crazy, don't go fucking buy it for them. It's, I think the one I'm thinking of, there was some kind of a domestic violence Issue. situation, so maybe she was cowed. But what's the deal with his brother? Like, oh, well, sure, crazy younger brother, I'll buy a gun for well, you. and remember, he'd also written to his sister, pretty much implying he was going to do something. To so there were a lot of things. But he went back and forth by bus between Tucson and L.A. a lot that summer to try to find Rebecca. And twice in the months before he killed her, he visited the studio where she shot my sister Sam. The first time, according to many accounts, he carried a five-foot teddy bear. The second time, he carried a knife. He wasn't let in either time, and it's not clear if anyone knew he had the knife or if this is just his retelling of it. And as I said, he had contacted her agent. He had also written her numerous letters over two years. One, and who does this sound like, assured her the letter he had just written her was, quote, the most beautiful letter you'll ever get from any fan. Hmm. We know some nutty people who speak in that type of hype. Believe me. And he also wrote letters to others about her and about his obsession with her. She replied to an early letter, and that's the one she had the studio photograph with her autograph on that he used to prove the P.I., and he knew her. He also had a shrine to her in his room, and he carried around a big, thick envelope full of letters to her and about her and photos of her. Uh. The morning he killed Rebecca Schaefer, he said later in an interview before his conviction, the second time he went to her door, she acted impatient with him. She was in a bathrobe. She had just taken a shower. She had things to do. She was apparently polite but impatient. And he says that's why he shot her. He has also given the excuse that that after he saw her bedroom scene in the movie Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, which also had Diane Cannon, another object of his Ah. affections, it turned her from an innocent girl into, quote, one of the bitches of Hollywood, and it enraged him, and that's why he shot her. Fuck him. But we all know that they all have reasons that they think sound plausible why they shot somebody. He wouldn't have gone to her house, you know, the whole thing about her being impatient with him, he wouldn't have gone there with a loaded gun in his hmm. pants if he wasn't going to shoot her. <laughs> <laughs> a loaded gun in his <laughs> pants. I know. Well, I'm I don't want to give him the satisfaction of a Asshole. sexual double entendre. And one side note to the whole Robert Bardo story, the prosecutor in the case was Marcia Clark. Ooh, Marcia. This was pre-O.J. Simpson fame, just a year That's or two right. before. And Bardo started trying to stalk her from prison before <laughs> that was tampon. You know, you can take the stalker. You can take the... I don't oh, know. Yeah, yeah, you know, know. But Schaefer's death resulted in, by 1993, almost every state having anti-stalking laws. And you'll read that in a lot of places, but we'll also see that another woman, Kathy Beatty, had a lot to do with that, too. But Schaefer's de- death galvanized people. It was another wake-up call about stalking. It also caused L.A. to tighten up things like access to public records, access to DMV records. It also spurred the formation of the LAPD's Threat Assessment Unit, which deals with stalking cases almost exclusively. Was that where Pete works? No, (laughs) Pete. 
He's a psychologist. Guy. Oh, that's he's right. a he's defense a stalking consultant. I'm surprised you don't remember that. <laughs> Sorry. But you can read but it on the But there was Shrine another guy on the, I know, on the there Shrine in your guy. bedroom. And it gave what was going on an official name. Stalking. Right. That's so there right. we go. By the mid-1990s, stalking was definitely a thing. A British documentary from this era called I'm Your Number One Fan focuses on some celebrity stalking cases in that country. It looks like it came out in the mid to early 90s. I can't really tell. And as you all know, the title I'm Your Number One Fan comes from Stephen King's epic stalking novel, Misery. Yeah. Even though the movie's good and Kathy Bates oh, Misery, is great. The yeah, book and is James really Conn. Yeah. But the book is much better and yeah. really makes the stalking a lot more chilling yeah. than the movie does. But that the documentary focuses on a woman who's obsessed with a singer who we're supposed to know who he is, and I don't because oh, it's a British thing. British ones. Another woman who's obsessed with a DJ to the point where she thinks he's her husband and has a T-shirt with his name and picture. A man, a German man, who lives in Britain, who's obsessed with Princess Di and also thinks... The Queen is the Beast. It's a very interesting documentary. It's mm. cringeworthy in a lot of places. It's frightening and it's really sad. The, the stalkers obviously all have major mental health issues. Mm. and But all of them say they're not crazy, they're not stalkers, and they think what they're doing is perfectly normal. Because they're nuts. Yeah. And when they're called out on their stalking, a couple of them were arrested for various things or got in trouble in other ways. They don't have a moment of clarity and realize how off base they are. They blame the person who caught them or law enforcement or their own stupidity at not doing things differently. Another good documentary from the same time period is the criminal investigation episode that I mentioned earlier. And as I said, this used to be hosted by Bill Curtis. Who's now on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Is he? He took good over for, for Carl Castle as a scorekeeper. Yeah, he always makes a funny joke with his name in it. But one woman in this episode of CI that came out in 1994 is Kathy Beatty. And at the time, she was the wife of pro football player Greg Beatty. And she was stalked for years, for like 10 years, by a man that she went to high school with. And she barely knew him in high school. His name was Larry Stagner. Once she went away to college, I think she went to UCLA, and she's from California, he started pestering her with letters and phone calls and visits. This went on for 10 years. Lots of times he'd call her just to tell her he had seen what she was wearing that yeah. day. And all sorts of creepy stuff Wouldn't like that. Wouldn't it almost make you want to kill the stalker? It does, and she even says that. She even I says... Mean, I would be like, I'm going to run that fucker over next time I see him. She says it changes you as a person. Because you probably get desperate. And so when he showed up in her kitchen with a knife ah. in 1990, she tried to reason with him, telling him she'd expected him and asked him to take a seat and they could talk. Ah. He wasn't really falling for it, and as she tried to negotiate with him, she was standing near the telephone, the phone rang, and he let her answer it inexplicably, and it was her mother. Her mother already knew, I mean, everybody knew about this problem. The police even knew, and this is one case where the police were actually kind of sympathetic. That's because husband was a football player. Right, but the police couldn't do much about yeah, it. at the time, But they yeah. knew. So as her mother talked to her, she gave nonsensical answers to her mother's question. Her mother figured out what's going on, and her mother said... Luckily, her mother was smart. Is he there, and are you in danger? And she answered yes, so her mother called the cops. Meanwhile, Stagner took Kathy out to the garage, tied her up, ah. then decided to take her away at gunpoint. He had her car keys, and she's like, where's the cops? She tells this very well. And as he was trying to get her into the car... 
he kind of let down his guard for a minute. She got away, and all of a sudden there were cops everywhere. But uh. there was a 10-hour standoff before they took him to jail. Ugh. And on him, they found 180 rounds of ammo, a couple mm. guns, the usual knife. Just he was sentenced to a few years in prison on some minor charges that were only because he had held her and he didn't take her off her property, so it wasn't kidnapping, it was only attempted kidnapping. He was released from prison in December 1994. In January 1995, he was arrested near her home in California and was put in jail again. She was in Florida at the time. Her husband played for the Miami Dolphins. And I looked, and I couldn't find out anything else about him on the internet. I don't know Mm. if he's alive or dead. Beatty couldn't be protected from him, even though the cops knew, until she was attacked by him in her own home. Because there were no laws addressing stalking at the time, despite the small moves that were made after Schaefer was killed a couple years before. Or actually, it was just a year before. Beatty helped change that. She helped develop, with her local congressman, the nation's first anti-stalking law in the early 1990s. And by 1993, every state had an anti-stalking law. And so part of it was what happened with Rebecca Schaefer. But Beatty is the one who said, I, she's a real go-getter, and said, I have to do something about this. And remember her name, because we're going to talk about her a little at the end. Okay. And one thing I haven't <laughs> mentioned is the disparity between two kinds of stalking. The one that gets most of the attention, the Bardo-type celebrity stalkers, and the much more common domestic violence stalker. Yeah. At the time of the CI episode, 1994, there was one case that combined both. Tina Sinatra, the daughter of Frank, was being stalked by her ex-boyfriend, actor James Farentino. Yes, and a few younger, I remember that. And if you younger listeners aren't familiar with James Farentino, he was a big deal up until this, and then his career kind of crashed and burned. He was in a lot of TV shows, yes, a lot and of his movies. eyes are too close together. Yes. Tina Sinatra and James Farentino had had a five-year relationship. She had broken up with him. She describes him, and it's another typical female thing. Oh, he, you know, inside there was a loving teddy yeah, right. bear kind of guy, but he could also be very violent and angry. Yeah. Which, to me, totally negates the lovable teddy bear inside. You know, everybody has a lovable teddy bear inside somewhere. You know, even Hitler, I'm sure, had one. But in any case, <laughs> it being the 90s, Ferentino used faxes and the telephone to harass Sinatra. She got a restraining order, which faxes. he... Yeah, faxes. <laughs> You're waiting for the faxes. faxes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's effective. It's like a letter or an email. I know, you know? I know. And, and he violated restraining orders mm-hmm. against her. He was charged with enough counts eventually to net him a potential 22 years in prison. Tough. And she talks in the documentary, the 1994 documentary, about how she didn't want to tell anyone, and like many victims, from the research I did starting in the 80s and all the way to now, and some on that 48 hours mystery, equate it to rape. And she talks of the need to isolate herself, and at one point says, I haven't had a minute of peace, I'm like a dead woman. Also a theme that runs through all the stalking research from the 1980s is the stalker trying to rationalize or explain his behavior, doing a sorry, not sorry, a lot of it has some victim blaming, Here's a quote from James Ferentino in 2003 to the LA Times. My behavior was appalling, feeling so hurt and rejected that I was the victim and I, when I really wasn't. So you inflict your pain on someone else to make them identify with you. Yeah, so instead yeah. of just saying, you know, he was being an asshole or whatever, he has to point out that he oh, was, I was in pain. Oh, it was hurting. Yeah. 
Right. Fuck you. And another no. theme is that the public and those in positions of authority tend to downplay the stalker's behavior and the stalker. Mm-hmm. Many of the obits for Ferentino, who died in 2012, refer to his antics and other similar <laughs> words. He was sentenced to 36 months of probation, and he had to go to alcohol counseling and other counseling after, um, and this was, I think, after the documentary was made. It was made while she was still waiting. But it makes you wonder, if she hadn't been famous and the daughter of someone who was super famous... And he was still famous? And Ferentino was... Well, yes, if Ferentino was famous and the woman he was stalking was not Tina Sinatra. You know, I'm not saying she shouldn't have gotten the attention she deserved. She deserved it. They all deserve it. I'm just cynical about whether or not... But I also wonder, on the other hand, if the sentence against him would have been more harsh... Oh, yeah. ...if he weren't an actor. Although, again, the laws then... Yeah. Well, 36 months probation and going to counseling. If he actually had to go, too. That's the thing that pisses me off. Well, he went to AA. He dried out, apparently. So let's fast forward to the 48 Hours Mystery 2 part that aired a few weeks ago that we watched. Oh, yeah. So Polly Perrette of NCIS, one of the women the documentary focused on, is pushing to tighten the laws that were first passed by Kathy Beatty by her efforts in the 1990s. And we know a lot more about stalking now that we did when Rebecca Schaefer was killed or when James Farentino stalked. Tina Sinatra. One of every six women and one of and one out of every nineteen men are stalked, wow. or at least those are the ones who report it. People still don't. Oh, but the could ma- be being stalked and not even know it. I know, like Chrissy Gray. Oh. The majority of stalking is domestic violence stalking. Park Dietz, an expert in the nineteen ninety four criminal investigation episode, who's frequently referred to, and there's an interesting piece from 1990 I found online where he reviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of letters from stalkers to their victims and does this whole psychological thing that's pretty interesting. But he said the huge majority of stalkings are domestic, and that's still backed up by today's experts. We heard that on the 40 And I think just as people watching, we find the celebrity ones more intriguing, but the domestic ones are the ones that are more likely to result in somebody getting hurt. Both have one big thing in common, the need to control the victim. Mm. And Chris Mahandi, the psychiatrist or oh, psychologist Pete. on 48 you mean Hours. You Pete. But anyway, he's also a consultant on stalking, Chris Mahandi, not Pete, the mm. police chief in my book. Mm-hmm. And he's been one for the past 25 years. And because we have the 48 Hours Mystery app, they have little sidebar videos. And he says in one of the sidebar videos, and I don't know why they didn't deem this important enough to put in their two hours of film on this that to be considered a stalker a person has to have an obsession with somebody and there also has to be unwanted pursuit but he said by far the most common there's four kinds of stalking the most common and most dangerous is domestic stalking by a former partner domestic violence homicides often have stalking components and there's a 74 percent violence risk rate with domestic stalking but most of that violence he said is pushing shoving hitting, what he called garden variety violence. Hmm. The other kinds of stalking are acquaintance stalking, which has a 50% violence risk, and this is when you're stalked by someone you know but didn't have a romantic relationship with, like maybe you stalk your doctor or your dentist. I don't know why I'm picking out medical people. Or, <laughs> or a neighbor. Or, yeah, my neighbors. I right. told you I was going to stalk them. There are also two kinds of stranger stalking. Public stranger stalking, which is what the celebrity stalking is. Yes, okay. And he said, well, that only has a violence risk of 2%. 
it's still, you know, frightening because you don't know if you're in that 2%. Yes. And also, that violence tends to be at a much higher degree than your garden variety because domestic when violence. when they get the chance to right. actually see the person. They're not going to shove you or slap you or something. They're going to fucking kill you yeah. or try to. And then there's also private stranger stalking, which is, he gave the example, like, you work at the same mall with somebody. You don't know the person. They don't know you, but they see you and start stalking you. You may not even know they're stalking you. Yeah. He didn't give the violence risk percentage for that, but he did say it's frightening because that person has access to you and knows where you are and knows where to find you. So I know. If you work in a place that's public, like if you're a waitress or, a, or you work at, retail, in a retail, yeah. I mean, yeah. With all forms of stalking, he didn't say this, but it's something that became obvious on the 48 hours thing, and I think we're all smart people. We would have figured it out anyway. Social media... And the internet have really upped the stalking game. I mean, there was Jimmy Ferentino sending faxes, and the telephone was a big thing, and you had to get out of your off your butt and go follow people around. And now, you know, yeah. you have social media. Yeah. But still, a lot hasn't changed. A lot of what victims say now about police response, how they feel about themselves, and their willingness to talk about the issues is very similar to the women in the 1994 episode. And that one, there's a wow moment. <laughs> where they show this registry that can help ID possible stalkers, and it's in the old computer, you know, the green green computer. Black background, green letters. Yes. And the problem with it is, and I think I saw this on a documentary about something else, but it involves putting a lot of information in. It's supposed to, like, help target potential stalkers. So every time somebody's arrested, you have to put all the stuff in, and cops just didn't want to do it. And they don't say it on that CI episode, but I do remember seeing either reading in a book or seen a documentary about something else in the past six months, maybe, where they talked about how the thing didn't work because no cop wanted to sit there and put all that information yeah. in. Although, this show, it's like, oh, wow, look at this. You can, you know, pick out who's going to be a stalker. It was just so much work. But now, with updated computer processes, there's a national registry that works a lot better of stalkers, of people who have been accused or convicted of stalking. There's a lot more training and awareness. But still, that's like when it's a domestic situation, you pretty much know that when they're right, doing you know, it. Right. Uh, this is just, I'm just to saying. target people, know. You, know, you know, the drifters who get on buses. Yes, That I know. type of stalker. But it's clear in the 48 hours that some of the same issues mm-hmm. per- persist. Despite increased awareness, the women the show focused on almost all said the police didn't take their concerns no. seriously. Like that one woman who was a lawyer, and they wouldn't... I know. They didn't and believe she knew her. The guy broke into the house. Right, and and they wouldn't believe what she was saying, and it, then it's like, what did you do to... Their and, she was, and she knew the law. Right. And they the, still didn't do anything. Right. Their concerns aren't taken seriously. There's a lot of victim shaming. Women are told they're being dramatic or overreacting or asked what they did or... And I, let me guess what the gender is of the cops that are... It doesn't the, say. I know. Perrette and the others in the show talk a lot about their fear of getting killed and the potential for it. My guess is that's how it has to be focused to get things changed. Mm. But the aspect that was told so well in the 1994 criminal investigation, also on that British documentary, and other things from that era, barely touched on the potential to get killed part and touched on something that those 48 hours barely touched on, which is the constant terrorism stalking mm. victims are subject to. Yeah. That's incredibly damaging to their You're health. Stress. You probably can't sleep. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like. Park Dietz, the expert in the 1994 documentary, talks about how terrifying it is to be pursued, watched, and harassed 
by someone you possibly might not even know mm-hmm. or someone you know and then have the police not believe you. And I was a little bothered that the 48 Hours Mystery, they kept talking about, the women kept saying, you know, I could get killed. I, and I understand why they're saying that. But you almost feel like the issues of just what it's like to be stalked like that are downplayed so much by people they try to explain it to that it's not considered a credible argument anymore. Yeah, maybe. Although they did talk about it and that the group of them talking together, they were talking about it. Right. But yeah. But they don't talk about it as much. No, they do They keep stressing they, I could get yes. killed. And my feeling is even if you're not going to get killed, it, t- someone's it torturing you. They're mentally and an, torturing right, you. An attorney in that 1994 documentary calls it terrorism. He says it it's is. terrorism to have someone constantly focused on you wanting to do you harm. Another thing I was bothered about in the 48 Hours Mystery episode was it focused on, I guess you call him a super stalker, Justin Masler. Ugh. He's got more than 100 people on his list, including Ivanka Trump. Mm-hmm. And he apparently travels around the country stalking them, harassing and threatening. And now the Secret Service is going to be on his ass. Possibly. And he's, he does constant video I know. selfies of himself just going on and on. The guy is obviously, obviously has severe mental yeah. health issues. Lenora Clare, one of his victims, was on the 48 Hours episode. In some ways, he bears a scary resemblance to Bardo. Some of the, just his mannerisms and the way oh, he looks really? and the look yeah. on his face. And as Bardo said, I'm not a nut. Justin Masler said on 48 Hours, I'm not a stalker. Oh, and on, like that British documentary, all the people stressed how they're not stalkers. They're not stalkers. And I understand the frustration of Masler's victims. But they in 48 Hours, in a lot of ways, while acknowledging that he's mentally ill, also act as though his reaction should be those of a normal person. And I found it very uncomfortable to watch Aaron Moriarty on 48 Hours badger him in a so-called interview. I thought it was exploitive. It was, yeah. And there were a lot of other things they could have done in that show. The guys, you can tell by the videos of him how crazy he is. I felt it was exploitive to take somebody who's obviously mentally ill and push his buttons, which he was doing, to have him blow up. And I'm not making excuses for him, but I feel like people kept mentioning mental health issues, but not... Talking, but then, but then, yeah, like almost gratuitously mentioned the mental health thing. But what they really want to do is have this guy all of a sudden act like a normal crazy. person or respond. Yeah, he's gonna. He right. needs to be. He's been in and out of mental health care, but it doesn't seem like his issues are taken that seriously. And it's another case too of him being enabled. One of the big problems is his mother, Randy, who was interviewed on the show. I. Eh. She sends him money. I that's know. That's one of the ways. Okay, let me let me say and makes excuses for him. She described him as quirky and and said what and said you can talk in a second. I know you're gonna have stuff to say about this. Calls the stuff he does acting out. He got near perfect scores on his SATs but dropped out of Phillips Exeter. Joined the Navy but was kicked out after having what was called a psychotic break. He was hospitalized, diagnosed as schizophrenic, and his mother still doesn't seem to understand the, the seriousness of what he's going through. And Aaron Moriarty says, wouldn't it be better if you didn't give him money, if he didn't have money so he couldn't travel the way he does? I mean, aren't you in some way enabling what he does? And the mother says, maybe. I never thought about it that way. I thought I was helping him to live a little bit, but I didn't know that he was traveling the country scaring women. Well, yes, she did, because the Ivanka Trump thing was well known. She Uh knew what his issues were. She knew about Lenora Claire. So she did know he was traveling around the country scaring women, as she says. Randy says she didn't know about Lenora Claire, but it was a well-publicized thing. And since the guy talks nonstop, I'm sure he told his mother. 
she feels her son is desperate to connect with people even if it's just over a computer. And I don't disagree with that. He said to Aaron Moriarty, I use computers everywhere. It's really easy to get wireless computer access. And so Moriarty asks Randy, do you think he's just lonely? And Randy says, oh, yes, he's trying to reach out to anyone. <laughs> and that's a big aspect of it. Gavin DeBecker in the 1994 criminal investigation show said much of stalking, at least this type, and, and DeBecker is somebody who's an expert on celebrity stalking, other things, is trying to reach out in a way to people. DeBecker called himself a voice in the wilderness on stalking for years, and this was in 1994. And he said, well, that desperation to connect can send people with issues over the edge. But he also stressed, and this was in 1994, and this is one of the little things you get where people actually recognize the mental health aspects, that he himself was an abused child or something. He doesn't really go into a lot of detail, but said he thinks the things that like makes him different from, say, Robert Bardo, is that somebody, when he was developing as a teenager, young man, somebody reached out to him and helped him go in the other direction. But also, he's not mentally ill. That's true. What I was going to say about that Justin guy, Masler, yeah. I do think his mother, I think she does take his mental illness seriously. I think she doesn't know what to do about it, short of institutionalizing him. So well, I maybe he needs to be institutionalized. I know, but I know, but it's not that easy to institutionalize. I know it's somebody. not. And I'm not saying she couldn't be a little bit more whatever. I just feel like she. Part of it is my reaction to the fact they showed their house. They have this beautiful house. Yes, they're, they're wealthy. wealthy. I understand what you were saying about her. I'm not saying she's blameless, and I do think she's got her head in the sand quite a bit about her son. But I also feel like. If she doesn't know what she can do about it. I understand that. And maybe this is part of my, you know, prejudice against people with tons and tons and tons of money is that she certainly has the resources to find out from someone what she can do about it. If there's something to do, maybe the solution is to just let Justin travel around the country harassing women. I think, yeah, but I think that people who have somebody in their family who's mentally ill and who's homeless because of it, the only way to keep tabs on what they're doing is sometimes is to send them I money. I understand. But she can easily keep tabs on what Justin's doing yes, because he takes nonstop video selfies and emails them all over the place I and I'm sure she's on his email list. I know that's true. So I understand what you're saying. But I also feel like 48 Hours was ex- kind I felt of exploiting they were both of them so we don't know for sure that's true. Exactly where she stands. It's easy. It's it's easy in a short interview to make. Some I felt like in some ways she she seemed naive, but in other times I felt like she was helpless to do anything about it. And I'll concede that point. But then there's also he had stalked Ivanka Trump, yeah. and then his brother. He went to New York to see his yeah. brother, and his brother booked him in a hotel to. I know, right? Two blocks from Trump Tower. I know. And what the fuck? The mother, I think, said in the show, and I'm kind of remembering this. He he didn't know, and he just booked him into right. So it's you know, be a little more aware of your. If you have a family member who's that seriously mentally ill, and you have the money, well, he's going to get shot by the Secret Service. Is what's going to happen? Maybe he will, unless he's given up. He has 108, I think, stocking subjects. So maybe Ivanka. He'll give up on her. Possibly. So Gavin DeBecker, as we were talking about, had said, you know, a lot of it is they need that contact. And he's not saying that that's yeah, the I solution, know. but what they're trying to do is, in a lot of these celebrity stranger stalking things, is make that connection. 
psychologist Chris Mohandi, otherwise known as Pete, said on the 48 Hours, Fantasy Pete. here's a quote from him, most people who have serious mental illness will not be dangerous to others, and that's an important point. So you're looking at the unique variables in a particular case that may relate to increased violence risk. From what I've seen of Justin Masler, he has had violent ideas, he's pursued many other victims, he's not dissuaded by restraining orders, and all of those are concerning risk factors. What we need are better resources for those mentally ill people that are in our communities so they can get an adequate level of care and not be allowed to get too far out there with their ideas. Mm -hmm. And Lenora Clare, who's being stalked by Justin Masler and whose father was a psychiatrist, said on 48 Hours that she understands that Justin's behavior is a result of mental illness. And she says, if I could send a message to Justin, I'd want him to know that I do know what, that he's a person, you know, and that I do believe that people who are mentally unwell can get help. And then she says, but what he's done to me and others is, it's really, it's just absolutely awful. I agree with that. And one issue is, it's not just about stalking, but I think mental health issues are not taken as seriously as they should be in this country. They're not taken seriously in the workplace. They're not taken seriously in public. They're not taken seriously by government as far as where the government money goes. doesn't care. Most of the people incarcerated in this country have mental health issues and, where are mental, and are not where taken are, care of. We'd there rather aren't any public mental hospitals anymore. Really. Right. We'd rather use money to just lock people up where their mental health issues are going to get worse, not better. Than, um, in fact, the guy who was obsessed with Princess Diana in that a British documentary started obsessing about the queen while he was in prison because all he ever heard about was the queen and it started really pissing him off <laughs> and he too and he I had access oh this is funny he had access to reading material was the bible uh, and british tabloids oh god so you put those two together and he and he had this complicated mathematical you know the british thing is er2 like Regina elizabeth II for the queen or something oh, yeah and you know some symbol they have with their latin and all their uh -huh. shit and he had this complicated mathematical formula, and I'll put a link to this documentary on our website because it's worth watching, that went on and on and on, just crazy, crazy shit that showed how if you take ER2, the Roman numeral, and do all this, this like five minute long <laughs> mathematical thing, it adds up to 666. Ah. So that makes the queen. You know sick. what though? Even if you read like People magazine, they're like obsessed with the royal family. They are, too. because they wish we had. Everybody's obsessed. You know, with as them. I always say, not to get off on another tangent, we fought a fucking revolution so we didn't have to pay for the biggest welfare recipients in the world to live the way they live. Yes. And I know they're wonderful and they do good works, blah, 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 but they are the biggest welfare recipients in the world. And we fought a fucking revolution so we wouldn't have to pay their bills. And now we still and, fawn over them. And we all still the fawn time. over them and curtsy and wish we were fucking. There was what? something else I was going to say. Oh, one thing I wanted to say. They were talking about, you know, people wanting to reach out and, and connect. And I think all. You don't people, want to connect with your stalker, though. Yeah. But I'm saying all people, when it's celebrities, there are a lot of people that have those same feelings about a celebrity that they admire. But it's they're true. not mentally ill and they're not obsessive. Right. Like, remember the Bob Dylan saying, you know, you all think you're my brother. I don't fucking know you. Yeah, I know. You're not my brother. And a lot, of, a lot of them, but I'm sure every celebrity can tell you there's people that are overly familiar with you, people feel that they can just come up and talk to you or people are writing you these weird you. letters or think they know you and somebody who's mentally ill thinks that's real. Yeah. Back to the 48 hours show that we watched. I like the fact that they have Polly Perrette and the laws. She's trying to upgrade the laws that were passed, you know, two decades ago and that type of thing. But I think a lot of it was exploitive. 
And there are a lot of issues involved. And another issue that they barely touched on, except for the very, very end of the two hours, is the availability of guns. Mm-hmm. And it focused even less on that than it did on mental illness awareness. Now, Loibel, the young man who killed Christina Grimmie, was heavily armed. Mm. While police said there were no red flags that would make anyone think Loibel would do anything to harm Grimmie, TMZ and other sources reported he had a hair transplant, LASIK eye surgery, and even became a vegan and and lost 50 50 pounds pounds in order to make himself more appealing to her. See, what I don't understand is why did he, he didn't even like meet her, he just shot her. Uh, well, he wasn't a sane person, but I, I, I may be able to explain a little okay, of that sorry. here. He told his one friend, it seemed to be the one close friend he had at work, that she was his soulmate, mm. and he saw God in her. Mm. He felt, I think if he killed her, they would be the, uh, they would have I a bond. Well, he never told any of that, apparently, to his family. They said they noticed the physical changes in him. And he also had, apparently, a shrine, kind of similar to Bardo's, to Rebecca Schaefer, and just was constantly going on the internet about her, watching YouTube videos about her all the time. He stayed alone in his room most of the time, only leaving to go to his Geek Squad job at Best (laughs) Buy. Just like you. (laughs) Just like me. You can see the shrines in my room. As we all know, there's a reason I stay in my room by myself. alone with my iPad. (laughs) So his family, he lived with his father and brother, and he stayed in his room all the time, except for when he went to his... Did I say he was on the Geek Squad? Yes, several times. You know what? Our Geek Squad fans are going to stop listening because you're making fun of them. I'm not making fun. I'm just mentioning. But his father (laughs) and brother never saw him with a gun, and he was never diagnosed with any mental health issues, so no red flags. His friend told Loibel's Best Buy boss that he thought Loibel, but he told the boss at Best Buy that he thought Loibel's obsession with Grimmie was not normal or healthy, and he thought it was affecting Loibel's behavior, and he was growing concerned about it. But the boss said since it wasn't a work issue, he wasn't going to get involved. No red flags. The Orlando Sentinel reported the friend believed Loibel spent most of his waking hours watching Christina on YouTube as well as constantly monitoring her social media accounts. Oh, yeah, because she did. And she was all over. She checked she in, which like, you do uh, when you're you're trying to build a, you know. A base. You have to yeah. build a base. And when the friend told Loibel it was illogical to think that Grimmie would want to start dating him since they had never met, <laughs> Loibel got very upset and defensive, the friend told police. The idea of Grimmie rejecting him was out of the question. Oh... So here's more from the Orlando Sentinel's June 22nd story about the killing. So this was a a little while after the killing. Loibel bought two 9mm handguns at gun stores in St. Petersburg in the weeks leading up to the killing. A Glock 26 on May 25th, which he picked up after a waiting period of of five or six days, and a Glock 19 on June 1st, which he picked up on June 7th. So he did do the waiting period, so all legal and everything. He didn't have a criminal record or documented history of mental illness or substance abuse. So he was able to purchase the guns legally. The friend told police he last saw Loibel on June 5th, and Loibel returned a few magazines to his friend's house and said he was, quote, tired and ready to ascend. Uh Uh-oh. And he told his friend he loved him. In hindsight, the friend told police, his words seemed weird and sad. Uh, but he never heard Loyal make violent threats, and he didn't know he had guns, so again. And I'm not saying everybody should have seen all these things and said the guy's mentally ill. 
But it seems like nobody, except for this friend, was paying attention to him either. In his household or at work, I feel like this is an isolated guy who was allowed to to be alone with his obsession, and nobody gave a shit or did anything about it. Although, to be fair to the people around him, you're not going to, like, assume... No, but if your son in his 20s spends literally all his time alone in his room, and has gone through some major physical changes... <laughs> And, I, and I'm in my 50s, so it's a No, I'm laughing because uh, uh, probably and I'm most alone. guys I'm in their... T- no, I'm thinking most guys in their 20s that live with their parents are probably spend most of their time in their room. I would think they would, but still, I it mean, doesn't sound like anyone was in yes, touch with I him. Yes, I understand. And it's kind of what Gavin DeBecker was saying about somebody being there to connect. These people are isolated mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, and they're not connecting. But he left St. Petersburg the afternoon of June 9th, St. Petersburg, Florida, where he lived, got into a cab, headed for Orlando. He paid the driver $200 for a round-trip fare. Nice. Checked into the Courtyard Marriott without any luggage. This is the Orlando Sentinel again. Bought some food from the hotel snack bar and lay on top of the bed covers till it was time to leave for the show. Then he went to the show. Polly Perrette is working hard to raise awareness for stalking and its issues. It's too bad she has to fight perceptions and issues that should have changed with the other wake-up calls 30 years or more ago. There's Teresa Saldana, Dominique Dunn, Rebecca Schaefer, all the way to Chrissy Grimmie, and all the probably millions of people in between who have been stalked and the victims of stalking. The overarching issues are perception and awareness of mental health issues, taking people who feel threatened or terrorized seriously, paying more attention to how people get guns, what kind they get and why. And I fully understand freedom of expression, but what I don't understand is how when someone is being constantly harassed or threatened under law that we have now, why something more can't be done. And I understand how complex mental health issues can be, but I wish we could get past brushing them off and expecting people basically to act normal or fix themselves. I know. Instead of finding ways as a society that we can help fix people or get them in a comfortable place I know, it's difficult because you can't, you want people to have their rights as a human being, but at the same time, if what they're doing is infringing on somebody else's Well, and I think one of the biggest things, too, is people who are mentally ill, their issues aren't taken that seriously. We saw that with Todd Kohlhepp. We've seen that with a lot of the cases we talked about, and we saw it with a lot of people. Well, I think a lot of people would just rather not think about it until the person goes away. That's all they want. And people have to get past thinking that somebody has to wave a gun or threaten someone's life, or be diagnosed with a mental illness, if they're acting in a way that's frightening or weird, maybe there should be some reaching out. And, you know, we talked about Kathy Beatty, the pro football wife. In the 1994 documentary, one of the cops said, you know, we're changing the laws, we're doing this, we're doing that, but the biggest thing is that victims have to take it upon themselves to make themselves safe. And to I know, and I rolled my eyes too, and... Part of me is, yeah, thanks a lot, fucking law enforcement. Why don't you guys, if you guys would get off your ass and listen to people and take people seriously, it wouldn't be as much a problem. But on that note, Kathy Beatty, who ended up at some point divorcing her pro football husband, is now the, I looked her up online to see because she was scared as shit that when her stalker got out of prison, she was going to get killed. And so I wondered what happened. She is now Kathy the safety chick. She appears on TV. She has a reality show. And her big thing is teaching women how to empower themselves, teaching self-defense, and she and we'll link to her online too. 
And so she took that to heart. And despite the yeah. fact that she worked through channels to get laws changed, there are, are a lot of cases where laws aren't going to help people. And, and I think it's up to everyone to not be frightened and paranoid. Well, like, to talk about it. But to talk about it, to get awareness out there, but also to do things to make yourself safe. You know, there's things you can do on social media Yes, but I do think the more the more public you are about it, the less power the stalker has over you. That's true. We're talking about two kind of a two pronged things. No, so how you deal with with the stalker is that, but just how you deal in your daily life, whether you're being stalked or not, what you put on social media, how you behave, how you perceive the world around you, and I and like I said, I'm not talking about being all paranoid and hiding in your house. And thinking that there's a murderer behind every tree and that type of thing. But to be more aware of what's going on around you. But what you do publicly and what you do privately and, you know, all sorts of things. I think the big conclusion from that is while we have made some strides, there's a lot left to do. It was kind of funny the things in the 48 Hours Mystery that Polly Perrette was talking about that were kind of these revelations to 48 Hours Mystery, that if you look at the 1994 criminal investigation or read stuff, yeah, read Dominic same. Dunn's story about his daughter's murder and stuff, are things people were talking well, about. every day. Years. I mean, and we know here in Maine the crime rate's pretty low, but most of the crime is domestic violence, most of the serious crime. A lot of times it does have a stalking element. If someone leaves their spouse, usually it's the woman... Uh, leaves, uh, you know, the guy will go into her workplace and shoot her. There was one a few years ago where the guy drove through the window of the the um, office where she worked and one of her co-workers died. I'm sure somewhere in this country, every single day, there is somebody, a former partner, is trying to harm them. And that needs to be taken seriously. It does. I feel like restraining orders need to be taken seriously. It's not worth taking one out if somebody's going to be able to get to you. Yeah, so. or in that 48 hours where the the woman, the one who's the lawyer, oh, yeah. said, you know, and the, it, co- the restraining order was he couldn't get within 100 yards of her, so he would park 105 yards from her house and, and I, just and sit I, there. I mean, and that's okay. I mean, I'm not saying it's okay, but by law... It's legal, but a cop could still say, hey, I saw you over there. What the fuck? You know, there's a difference between following the law strictly and trying to taunt your victim still and i also feel like as i said in my in my text to you that when a woman complains about something i don't even want to say the word complain when a woman goes to the police about something take her seriously in our society that doesn't happen that's why so many women who are raped sexually assaulted don't report it because they know what's going to happen when they do and it. And I, still frankly, happen. as i said before if a, if somebody who was in some kind of position of uh, either famous or some other kind of powerful position, it raped me. I don't know if I would bother because no, cause nobody's who gonna wants believe to get you. dragged through the mud? You know, and that's why, and we'll talk about it in, in the near future. We're going to do an O.J. Simpson episode, yes. why Nicole Simpson had so much trouble with the constant stalking and battering by O.J. Even she couldn't get taken seriously because look who her... He was very. Hey, you know who you didn't talk about at all, though, was David Letterman, and he had that poor I know. Well, there were a lot. There were many, many people. Michael J. Fox got more than 6,000 letters from someone. I just couldn't. I mean, we've got on for a long time, and there were just too many. And you know, uh, he used to joke about her on his show a lot. And then I think someone spoke to him and said, Sim, you know, she's. Don't joke about it. 
Yeah. And then she killed us. She was sad. But I know. Anyway. It is, a lot of it is a lot of it is sad because a lot of these people, frankly, one of the things I felt about Justin Masler when we were watching the 48 Hours, and, you know, people were like outraged and everything at him. I just watched him and said, here he, is a very sad, nuts. mentally ill guy. And I also defy anyone to watch that British documentary, You're no, I'm Your Number One Fan, that I'll link to again on our website and not feel the complete and total sadness of watching these people talk about their obsessions. And on one hand, it's things that people would laugh at. They get laughed at. And it's just brutally I think sad. sometimes you laugh at it because it's so preposterous, but you still feel bad. Well, part of laughing at people who behave that way is because you're looking at them through this prism of we're all normal people, and here are normal people acting this way, yeah. and they're not, they're not, they're, they're ill. Yeah, I know. And it's sad when somebody who's ill is laughed at instead of taken seriously, who's mentally ill. And I really, my big issue with that 48 Hours Mystery was how I felt Justin Masler and his mother, I agree with you, were exploited in a lot of ways on that show. But I also feel like, you know, even the domestic stalkers, there is an element of mental illness there. There They're obsessive. Yeah, they're obsessive. But as we know, the legal definition and Matt, I don't know if we've talked about this with Matt before or not. No, we haven't, but we should talk We should. Because the difference between the medical definition and the legal definition yes. or whatever, yes. And some of it has to do with planning the person's murder. Yes. And, you know, Robert Bardo, his defense argued that he was schizophrenic, but that didn't matter. He was still found guilty and, and convicted. I, and to I, yes, because he, and there was another one I just and, was and listening to. And John Sweeney, the one who killed Dominique Dunn, his defense lawyer successfully argued, and it's very frustrating, that it kind of happened... In the passion of his anger Fuck. at her, and but he, in, there were indications that he planned to go over there and fucking kill well, her. Well, obviously, and he had attacked her before. Like and what? Like okay? Oh, he, they were in this. It was a passion of the moment because they were fighting. Well, they were fighting because he went over to her fucking house. Well, that's a trial, and I've seen this done before, but maybe this was the first one that happened. It took four to six minutes for her to be strangled uh, to death, and the lawyer, oh, the, just, the, just, the yeah. prosecutor said, okay, here's four minutes, and Dominic Dunn says in his account of it, everybody in the courtroom sat there in silence except for the defense lawyer and Sweeney who whispered to each other through the whole thing, which, to talk about lack of respect, if I were on that jury... And I know. the jury was hot and they wanted to go home, so they, you know. It's just, you know, whatever. He, somebody, one of the jurors actually said that on TV later. That they were they were kind of hung up, but they were hot and wanted to go home, so they just agreed to the lesser charge. But yeah. So that is stalking in a nutshell. And yeah. I, like, I, find, I just find it a fascinating. It is fascinating, but it, it, it's, it's also sad. It's and sad, and it's scary it's, if you're the person. I can't think of I, many things if you're, for, especially you some of these people desperate. for years, must, for 10 years. It must years. be a desperate feeling. I, I have sympathy for anybody that that happened to. I don't care who how famous no. they are no, or how if rich famous, they are. If you're famous or rich, scary. you're still person it's scary you still have feelings i mean like that that sandra, sandra bullock. bullock she sounded scared as shit right and she's i hiding felt bad in for her closet and she sounded like any scared woman hiding woman. in her closet yes. while some nut job was trying to get in her bedroom oh. so speaking of matt we're not talking to him about um what are that night i can't remember but we'll remember when we get when to we it. see him hi yeah. matt hi matt
here we are with Matt Nichols from Nichols and Churchill in Portland for our weekly Ask Lawyers segment. Hi, Matt. Hi, ladies. So today we're going to ask, this sounds, this sounds a little like a wonky kind of question, but it's actually really relevant, at least here in Maine. It seems like the state frequently asks for a harness hearing in Maine. My understanding is that harness means because of very specific reasons, a person's constitutional right to bail is denied. It seems like it should be rare, but it happens all the time in Maine capital cases. Your thoughts on that? Sure, you have to go back. Unfortunately, I'm going to take you on a little trip back in history. I feel like <laughs> Mr. Wizard with the uh, way, way, the way back, back machine. machine. The Maine Constitution allows or provides that uh, people accused of crimes shall be admitted to bail. And we have, there are two purposes for bail. Cash bail is imposed if there is a risk of flight. That is, the cash bail is uh, imposed to ensure the appearance of the defendant at all the proceedings. Second, there are conditions that can be imposed. The conditions must be based on uh, the state's interest in, to, to quote the statute, the bail code, to ensure the integrity of the judicial process. So if you have, let's say, a case where uh, of a violent crime, the court will impose a condition that says defendant shall have no contact with the alleged victim. The main constitution, uh, let's say uh, Article Article 1, Section 10, does, uh, makes an exception for formerly capital offenses. Now, as we all know, Maine used to be part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and Maine abolished death penalty long ago, fairly early in the 19th century. So that's why we now, today, we use the term formerly capital offenses. And those formerly capital offenses uh, range from murder, uh, rape, which is distinguished from today, we have gross sexual assault, yes, yeah. and that has a there's a plethora of ways that crime can be committed. But rape was forcible rape. That was a formerly capital offense. Uh, arson of a residence in the nighttime was a formerly capital hmm. offense well, because it could be and, possible murder. I would say. Well, but that, there's a whole interesting yeah. story uh, that I could tell you, ladies. We could talk for an hour just about the formerly capital offenses, and I've litigated the arson issue and uh, won a case with a dormitory being burned down, but that's another story for another day. Mm. Back in the days, we um, it had to be arson of a residence in the nighttime. Barn burning was okay. Oh, okay. It was not a formerly capital offense. Burning down churches was not a formerly yeah. capital offense. Mm, yeah. Burning down meeting houses, churches, was not a formerly capital offense, so it had to be a residence, had to be at night. Also, burglary of a residence while armed mm. was a formerly capital offense. Today, people kind of get a slap on the wrist for nighttime burglaries of residences, but those that was the group. So the state now, prior to about 20 years ago, these offenses, person was charged with these offenses, right, they had to be indicted. So that meant there was something of an adjudication, that is a grand jury process where a group of people hearing one side of the story found probable cause 
to believe the person committed formerly capital offense. And that was enough to extinguish the person's right to bail, period. The law has evolved to the point now, uh, that's enough for the history lesson, the point now where the person is charged with a formerly capital offense, the state can request a Harnish hearing. The Harnish case, State v. Harnish, is a 1986 main Supreme Court case that really defined these ground rules. It was based on a case called State v. Fredette, which was decided about a year or two earlier. But basically the way it works now is so-and-so, Mr. Smith, is charged with one of these four only capital offenses. The state, either relying on an affidavit for probable cause, which supports the arrest of the person, or if they already have a grand jury indictment, there's a finding of probable cause. Now the state has to ask for a harness hearing in which they, the state, has the burden of extinguishing the person's right mm, to bail. Okay. Always keep in mind, the judge still has, unlike the old days, even if the state establishes probable cause to believe the person committed a formerly capital offense, the court still has the authority, the discretion, to grant bail. So our system has changed from automatically extinguished based on a probable cause finding to now if the state has a burden showing probable cause at a hearing, an actual hearing, and still the right to bail is not. The bail as a matter of right is extinguished, but the court still has discretion to say, okay, some component of cash, there's a risk of flight, and or some conditions to ensure the integrity of the judicial process, I can release Mr. Smith on bond. Okay. That's, uh, yeah. I didn't, okay. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. It's very rarely used in anything other than murder cases. Yeah, I've had experience with it being used in an arson case it involved a dormitory at St. Joseph's College. By the way, my client was ultimately acquitted of four counts of arson. Hmm. So I, you know, I don't know how to do appeals because you only have to do appeals when you lose. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although you can file appeals but, for um, other lawyers, right? I mean, yeah. but, uh, yeah, but I'm not big on, on <laughs> research right. and writing. Right. Yeah, I know. The yeah. In fact, the one the one case I'm familiar with recently that the newspaper I worked at covered the one case where the defense was successful in getting the guy bail was not a murder case it was a it was an assault case and in none of the murder cases that i'm familiar with as a is a journalist have i seen the they're probably already successful. so if they're already indicted they don't usually have a harness no, they they, they do. You're entitled they to the harness hearing. Oh, you can. Because once you're indicted, then you get arrested. And once you're arrested, and I know I'm oversimplifying this, but I'm not a lawyer, you know, then they get arraigned, mm-hmm. right? And then sometimes the state asks for a harness hearing, which is scheduled right. sometimes after the arraignment because they want, and the person is usually held, right, without bail until the harness hearing. They have is a week. Correct? Okay. They okay. have a week to have the harness hearing. The defendant can waive that time limit if the defendant wants more information. I've had one uh, defendant in a murder case who was indicted, who was released on bail, 
And the arson case was interesting because I think we were, we were able to convince the court that this was not a formerly capital offense. Well, did anyone die or was it just arson? No, but it was arson, the it's dormitory at night time. Right. Yeah. The it state's position form. was it's a residence. And we went back with oh, a lot of ancient not. research okay. and said, no, this is not a residence under the old Massachusetts. Oh, nice. The Massachusetts Bay Colony laws, <laughs> it was not a residence, and as I said, it was not a capital offense to uh, burn down a church, a meeting house, yeah. or a barn. Or a barn. Remember Which the short many story, dormitory. right? Mm. Burning Which, barns. Oh, geez, that rings a bell. Yes. Uh, are we talking Mrs. Fryover here? We're ta- <laughs> we may be talking... Um, uh, Mr. Louis, Hilliard. Uh, we may be talking of my... Uh, one of my favorite teachers Mr. of all Hilliard. time, Louis Hilliard. Yeah, but we digress. Okay. <laughs> one thing about Harnish, though. So that's unique to Maine because I thought it was a... I mean, do other states have similar... Things? Uh, I'm going to confess, I have no idea. Okay, then we, we will just <laughs> cut that out of the... Because ours is, is so tied to, ours is so tied to particular the, colonial yeah, the colonial code of well, uh, the, the Massachusetts the logic behind Bay Colony. It, that makes sense because a residence at night, people would be sleeping. Hey, well, thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> Well, we both had busy weeks, so we didn't think of what our recommendations were going to be until yes. we drove over here. But you started talking about the movie All About, All about Eve. Eve. Well, we were talking about movies that we like. So we decided for our re- recommendations that we'd each do a movie we like, maybe an old-timey one, that we could recommend to people that yes. we really like but maybe is not on a lot of people's radar. So did you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. Right. So All About Eve is a movie, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, but... Betty Davis plays a, a stage actress, Margot Channing, who is first befriended by... Do you remember what year it came out? Then? 1950? Thank you. I believe. She's befriended by a young actress um, who kind of insinuates herself into her life and then tries to take over Oh, like life. single white female. Yes. It's almost a stalker situation. Oh, it is. Kind of, well, yeah, because she kind of does stalk her at the beginning. I didn't think about that. Well, it, wouldn't you think t- trying to take over someone's life Well, a... it, it's not like single white female where she tries to literally take over because she wants to be famous. And there have been a lot of kind of remakes and takes on that same kind of story, but the, probably the original one, I guess. I remember there was one with Or maybe um, the best. There was one I saw with Lonnie Anderson. and. <laughs> I can't remember. She was in the older role. I can't remember who the younger girl Someday was. Someday we'll have to talk about WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. Speaking of Lonnie. Lonnie. Anyways, let me get back on the subject. So it was nominated for 14 Oscars. And Betty Holy Davis shit. and Ann Baxter, Ann Baxter plays Eve. She and Betty Davis both were up for Best Actress. So they lost to Judy Holiday, I guess. Mm. Celeste Holm plays Betty Davis's friend. And I think that the husband in the movie, Celeste Holm's husband is, I believe he's the playwright in the play Margot's in, maybe. I don't know, but he's kind of boring actor. I can't mm. remember his name. Uh, Gary Merrill plays her husband in the movie, and I liked him very much in that movie. I hadn't seen him in many things. And that was the movie, I guess, they fell in love. And they had their house in Maine, near Two Lights. Near Two Lights, In Cape Elizabeth, near where we live. And near where that 
picnic happened where that guy his wife in 1993 fell to her death wife. i actually never thought about why i always liked this movie until we started talking about it tonight one of the things it's a very female-centric storyline betty devers's husband gary merrill he is a part of the movie but he's not his character doesn't drive any of the plot along there is a a theater critic he's the only one who's kind of driving the the storyline as the male Uh, Margot Channing and Eve and the friend Celeste Holm who I can't think of her characters you think I've seen it so many times I would but I like the fact that when Margot is trying to tell when she first notices Eve trying to get the best of her. Her husband poo-poos it, but then he does finally come to her side. But the other guy, Celeste Holmes' husband, I think is too dim-witted to notice. But she and Celeste Holm are best friends in the movie, and, and Celeste Holm and her apparently could not stand each other throughout the movie, but they're both such good actresses. I believe that, I mean, their friendship seems real. It's very natural, even though you think of old movies as kind of... Um, Dilted. Yeah, kind of affected, like especially Margot. She was kind of sarcastic and bitchy and difficult, but or you could empathize with her. I like characters who are difficult and bitchy, but you can <laughs> empathize with I mean, you really rooted for her... Even though she wasn't, you could tell that she was a kind of, I can't explain it, but she, it was a complex, it's a complex character, would you, which is good. It's a, now, I have to admit, I've never, if I've seen it, I don't remember seeing you it. You would so enjoy it. I, I think I would, and I'm going to go find it and watch it. Now, it would be characterized as a drama, right? It's not yes, a Yes, it's a drama. It's not a comedy. There are funny moments where, mostly Margot, where she, the most famous line is, buckle your seatbelts, run for a long night, or run for a bumpy night. Sorry, buckle yeah. your seatbelts. And I never knew that's night. what came. She says that at, she has this party at her house where she gets wasted, which everyone got wasted all the time. And that's well, the scene where Marilyn he... Monroe is in the scene, and she hardly says. I think she has two lines, but for some reason they. It was after she got famous they put her up on the marquee as being in the movie, which she kind of is. Well, I love that movie. I could watch it again and again. Have you watched it recently? Have you seen it recently? Probably a few years ago. I've watched it again. Maybe I should find it and maybe we can watch we it with We can Mom. watch it with Mom. Oh, Mom would like it, yeah. Because we're always looking for stuff on Saturday and Sunday to watch since MSNBC's usual shows aren't on. Oh, yeah. Got, what would Mom do without MSNBC? Oh, she wouldn't. It's funny because she's become an obsessive Saturday Night Live watcher. Mm. And, like, I can't stay up that late. I see I'm the old fogey in the house. But, like, this morning she goes, oh, it was so funny. Um, You know that woman, you know who I'm talking about, played what's-his-name, and it was so funny. And I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, were were you going to say any more about All About Eve? No, just that I think that don't people who don't want to watch movies because they're old and they're black and white really are missing, missing out, out because they're I mean and I'm not a movie snob I'm not one of these people oh, you have to watch it's it because, film. no yeah. I mean I watch something for entertainment value that is all I give a shit about but that is just I love that movie yeah. I just do but anyway the movie I'm going to talk about I think it's in black and white I have to admit I don't know that I've ever watched it on a color TV yeah because we had a black and white TV growing until up the 80s. And this was Mr. Roberts. Oh, yeah. And it was on, when we were kids growing up, Channel 38 and 56 from Boston just played yeah, movies all the time. So that's probably where movies. I watched it the most. Yeah. I haven't watched it recently. We should and, watch that, too. We'll and have so a double feature. We should. And this movie is different from yours. It's considered a comedy. It was made in 1955. And the plot is Henry Fonda plays a lieutenant or something on a cargo ship in the Navy and they're kind of out of the 
fight, even though they're in the Pacific somewhere. Jimmy Cagney plays the the uh, captain of the ship, and he just does not. He has a perfect record at I don't know not getting bombed or whatever, <laughs> and doesn't want to get involved in the fighting. And Henry Fonda feels like he's missing the war, and is constantly not only asking for transfers but bitching to the captain about things that are wrong and things and he drives the captain crazy. Jack Lemon, who I think is one of the reasons I really like this movie, he's one of my all-time favorite actors and I've read a couple reviews of this movie because I wanted to refresh my memory that talk about him hamming it up and I don't consider his acting hamming it up. The character he plays, Ensign Pulver, is kind of an over-the-top goofy, energetic guy. Think of, if you guys aren't that familiar, was think of Jim Carrey. A, is it a play? Was it a play? It was play? a play, okay. and Henry Fonda played that his character in oh, play Edison as well. Oh, okay. Oh, no, no, Henry he played Fonda played oh, okay. uh, Mr. Roberts. Yeah, okay, Mr. Roberts. So Mr. Roberts, who's Henry Fonda, and Jack Lemmon are bunkmates, and his his biggest goal in life is to stay out of the captain's way to the point where the captain doesn't even know he's on the ship. Mm. And he's kind of lazy. He's one of those people with a lot of big schemes and clever schemes and ways he's going to get back. He has a running thing about how he's going to get it, the captain, mm. these practical jokes he's going to do that are really going to get him, but he never does them. And Mr. Roberts, like Sons and Palmer, kind of tolerates, and they're total opposites. There's a lot of really dated things. The nurses, they're spying on the nurses on the island and that kind of thing. But the big plot point comes when they've been through a really rough time and they're going to have a liberty on this island, you know, where all the guys get to get off the ship. And something happens. Mr. Roberts does something to piss the captain off and he, and he rescinds their liberty. And the guys really, really need it. They're fighting with each other. They've got major cabin fever. And so Mr. Robert kind of makes a deal with the devil, with the captain, to get the guy's liberty, promises to not put him for any more transfers and to not complain anymore and to do everything and to behave the way, walk, toe the line the way the captain wants him to. So the guys get their liberty. It's a disaster. They trash the town. And Marty Milner, one of my favorite actors from the 70s, has a cute little has a cute little short part in that. And the guys just get drunk and trash. It's the best liberty ever, but the ship gets thrown out of the harbor and the captain's pissed because his perfect record at whatever has, has not is now tarnished. Meanwhile, the guys are all pissed at Mr. Roberts and feel disillusioned because he's being such a hard ass now and not putting him for transfers. And they don't understand it and they are upset with him. It comes to light, and I know maybe this is a spoiler alert, but the movie's 60-whatever years (laughs) old, so... The captain calls Mr. Roberts into his quarters to ream him out over over the chaotic disaster of a liberty... And they get into this big argument and comes out why Mr. Roberts has been behaving the way he is. You know, the captain said, you promised me if I gave them liberty, blah, blah, blah. And the microphone's on. So Ah. everybody in the ship hears it and then they realize why Mr. Roberts is acting that way. And so all the guys get together and put in a transfer and forge the captain's name. Hmm. And I don't know if you find out about this now or at the end of the movie. And it's all Ensign Pulver is the one behind it. And so Mr. Roberts ends up getting transferred into the action. World War II is coming to an end, but he finally gets on a battleship. And Ensign Pulver gets his job of being, like, he has to grow up a little. And um, meanwhile, one of the ongoing themes through this movie is the captain has this palm tree that was given to him as an award. And every morning he comes out and waters it. And Ensign Pulver is always saying, I'm going to throw that palm tree. Oh, and Henry Fonda at one point throws the palm tree overboard. 
happen to get some new one and change it down. Oh. And Ensign Pulver's always saying, oh, I'm going to throw that, you know. So Ensign Pulver's there, and he's kind of grown up, and, you know, he's not acting like a goofball anymore. And he gets a letter from Mr. Roberts about how he's in the thick of things, and but he still treasures. They made this medal for him, the Order of the Palm or something out of a... That looks like a palm tree because he threw the palm tree overboard. And he says, I treasure that more than any medal I may get. And then Ensign Pulver opens another letter, and it's from a friend no. on the ship. And Mr. Roberts was killed. No! After he... And so Ensign Pulver... Spoiler alert. It is a spoiler alert, but it's one of the reasons I like this movie. Ensign Pulver gets up. He marches over to the palm tree, pulls it out by its roots. Oh, by the way, the captain has, is now telling him how wonderful he is all the time because he's just towing the line and being a good... Throws it overboard, then goes, knocks on the door of the captain's cabin. Captain's like, who is that? He comes in, it is I, Ensign Pulver, and I just threw your goddamn palm tree overboard, and what's all this crap about no ice cream or whatever? And I know it sounds, the whole thing sounds kind of trite, and you just heard the entire plot. And you're nodding off to sleep. No, but one thing yet. I really have always liked, besides I like that type of plot, is Jack Lemon is a great actor. I think he was underrated in a lot of ways. People think, you know, he's a goofy or a ham. He does a lot of physical, humorous-type acting. You know, he's got one of those faces that lends itself mm-hmm. to being goofy and funny. He, I, you know, I've mentioned Jim Carrey. He's kind of like an earlier version, although I think a better actor and not as annoying. I thought <laughs> But he also is a really good dramatic actor. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the arc from being this goofball to his to what happens in the final scenes of that movie. I just, I've just always loved, and that's one of the things I watched about that change he makes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Henry Fonda's good. I'm, I'm a fan of his, and I always loved Jimmy Cagney. So it's got a good cast. It's funny in a lot of ways, but it tells us, it tells a story. It tells it well. It, it speaks to a certain era. I don't, nowadays it will be considered, I think, a little superficial. And, but, I just love Jack Lemmon. And that was one of his earliest movies. He actually got the Best Supporting Actor Ooh. Yeah, he must Oscar for that. Ooh. And so I recommend that movie just because, to, just to watch Jack Lemmon act. Okay. You know. And so I guess that's our show. Yeah. For tonight. Yes. And did, have we, we should do our usual. Our Twitter. Yeah. We have. and stuff. And our. Website Crime and Stuff Online, which we've mentioned a couple times tonight, not only has all our previous episodes and ways to subscribe, but also the page More Stuff, which has links to to some of the articles and videos and stuff we've watched as we research. Materials. Yeah, not all of it, but some of the yeah, stuff we like. Because I do share. a lot of it. I mean, I look at a lot of different things. Um, there might be some. Yeah. And some of it's just stuff we want to share with people because we think it's pretty cool. Yeah. And if you want to keep us going, you can, on our site, donate to Patreon. And for $2 a month or $5 a month, become a patron and get some of our merch that's upcoming. Some yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. And we'll have some of that on our website soon. We, pretty You soon. did some really cool little logos for our Patreon. And we'd like to thank Think Tank Coworking for yes. letting us record thank here. Thank you. And thanks to Matt and all to Sound J, listeners. Soundjay.com, where we get all our sound effects <laughs> sound and effects. music for free. Except for the traffic going by. Except for the traffic going and by. The natural, and the lady walking around upstairs. Yeah, we have a neighbor upstairs. We didn't know there was an apartment upstairs. Until recently. Okay. So that's it. And we'll talk to you guys next week when okay. we'll have another exciting yeah. crime and stuff. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. 
Jesus Christ, who is the fucking asshole who leaves time on the microwave? You know, there's a special place in hell for people who do that. Huh? Some dick left, left for like 46 seconds on the microwave. I don't know who the fuck does that. The ghost of <laughs> Some asshole. Ah. Oh, the thing was on.